live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome back to a brand new series. We've been having a lot of feedback on the Rabbi Modena series, which we haven't managed to get to, but we will be hopefully saying some of the questions and feedback mentioned up until now. We're back with a brand new one. This is a three-part series on Budapest you mentioned. Yep. But first, I just want to congratulate you for the articles that you wrote in all the Jewish magazines, in the Mishpacha and the Ami. How did that go? History articles, obviously. They were on the coronation in England, which was topical. Who better to call? Uh, yes, maybe. Uh, Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, no. The, I, I read the one in the Ami, and I, I saw the one in Mishpacha too. They were both... Fascinating, very detailed, and if anyone was wondering why we didn't do a podcast on the coronation, now they know you were too busy writing up about it. So we are going to be diving into Budapest. Why did you pick Budapest? So it's a city that people think they know, but don't, particularly because I'll be dealing with pre-1850. And also, generally, people sort of lump together all Central European countries, Hungary, Poland, Bohemia, which is the Czech Republic, and most people even assume them to be in Eastern Europe. And the thought is that they have a common history, but they don't. So we will see some of that too. Okay, so we're going to be covering hundreds of years on Budapest. So could you just lay out the background on Budapest for... Okay, yes, it's going to be useful. We'll do this briefly. The Romans conquered Hungary around 2,000 years ago. They called it Pannonia and founded a number of towns, including Buda. 500 years later, approximately, an Asiatic people called the Avars took over. And then at the end of the 8th century, Charlemagne, in conquering Central Europe, captured Hungary and forced them to accept Christianity. You know, if you're in the centre of Europe, there tends to be quite a lot of traffic. And back then it wasn't cars, it was invading armies. In the year 900, the Magyars, who come from central Russia, overrun Hungary and they stay. And it becomes the Magyar homeland and they were pagans. But Prince Geza, at the end of the 10th century, invited... German missionaries to come and preach Christianity to the people. He was baptized, although actually he continues to worship pagan gods as well. His son Stephen, who ruled for 37 years till 1038, was the first proper Christian ruler of Hungary. And this will be relevant to the Jews because by then Jews were there. Over the next 150 years, Hungary is part of Western civilization, and settlers from Germany, Romania came, and visitors described it as a prosperous country. And then disaster struck Hungary in 1241 when the Mongols invaded. 
Now, the Mongols only occupied Hungary for a year, but they caused quite a degree of devastation. And afterwards, there is a process of rebuilding under King Bela IV, in which really for the first time, we can talk about the Jews being prominently visible. And that is our subject for today. The history then changes dramatically in 1526, as we will see next week, because it becomes part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Budapest as such did not exist during most of this time, by which I mean a city by that name. The capital on one side of the Danube was Buda. Pest emerged only later. And in fact, it was only in 1849 that the first suspension bridge was constructed across the Danube to connect Pest with Buda. And only in 1873 that the two cities were unified together with Obuda to become Budapest. So it's a relatively young term. Do we have early records of the Jewish presence there? Until the 1400s, it's pretty sparse, especially Jewish records. But documentation from Hungarian archives do tell enough about the Jews, particularly the Jews and the kings of Hungary. And the first 300 years are unusual. To give you the first example, to start at the 11th century, the 1000s, they've just become Christian in Hungary. And King Stephen I produces a book of laws aimed at strengthening the newly adopted Christian faith in the country. So the Jews are targeted as a result. You would have expected exactly that. But legislation was not aimed at the Jews at all. There's nothing in there about the Jews. You have discriminatory laws, but they're aimed at the pagans, restricting their rights and function. And the most likely explanation for this is that in the early period of Hungarian independence, Christianity was struggling to establish itself. The small Jewish minority was irrelevant. It was the majority pagan population who were the threat, which is unusual in Europe. In fact, we don't have anti-Jewish laws passed until 1092, where they write, Jews cannot marry Christian women nor keep Christian slaves, which is also unusual because it indicates not just quite a degree of freedom, which is possible, but quite a degree of assimilation, very rapid one. So the likelihood is that these laws may just be precautionary, in other words, to prevent this happening in the future. The next unusual part is that we know that when the Crusades swept through Europe, so they killed Jews in, in France, in Germany, in Bohemia, the Crusaders crossed the Hungarian border and they start attacking Jews and their houses. And the Hungarian king, a nominally Christian king, Kalaman, fought them and almost wiped them out. I'm guessing it's not to protect the Jews. No, he protected his country. He was worried that Hungary was a soft target, but his actions did save the Jews of Hungary and gave the country a reputation as a place where Jews could live in safety. Now, little is mentioned for the next century about the Jews, which would probably indicate that no new restrictions were imposed upon them. And this can also be 
deduced from a letter in 1236 sent by the Pope to bishops in Hungary that they should convert the Jews from their error to the true faith by promising to supply them to the end of their lives with a certain sum of money each year. Now, offering money to Jews to get them to convert to Christianity wasn't unheard of, but writing it as a directive in a letter from the Pope would indicate that the position of the Jews in Hungary was good enough that they would be unwilling to renounce their religion without considerable financial gain. It it all sounds a bit too good to be true, this. Okay, so yes, but firstly, the, the numbers of Jews are very small, and at this moment in time, they're not yet prominent, which will change under the reign of King Bela IV in the 1200s. He is the first to issue a document which regulated the rights of the Jews, a famous document, December 7th, 1251. And the next 200 years, almost 300, would constantly refer back to this. In terms of individuals, we encounter the Jewish treasurer, Count Teha. In a document that we still have, the king agreed to pay the Austrian duke 2,000 marks, and this payment is guaranteed by this Jew Teha, which means he's both very rich and close to the king. And even more interesting, we find that at one point, the king ordered him to surrender one of his estates in favour of a knight. This Teha just like nobility would do, defies the king's ruling. And the knight repeatedly complains to the king. It takes three years until he hands it over, which means clearly he knew that the king needed him. You wouldn't have this behavior otherwise. And at the end of the 13th century, when the church tried to restrict the Jews in Hungary, um, the bishop of Buddha in 1279 convened a church council But the king considered some of their ideas to be an infringement upon the rights of the crown. And he commanded, he ordered the citizens of Buddha not to sell food to any of the assembled priests. So they were forced to leave the city because they were starving. Wow. So this is 1279, almost uh, 750 years ago. I'm guessing this is the first real attempt to legislate against Jews by the church. It's very early. In Hungary, yes, and it is unsuccessful. In fact, the Jews also escaped another close brush with the dark side, the Black Death of 1348, which wiped out so much of the population of Europe more or less didn't exist in Hungary because the country was so sparsely populated that the epidemic didn't spread. So this is the 1200s. Nearly a century later, under King the I, the situation took a turn for the worse. Despite the fact that he is referred to in history as Lajos the Great, unfortunately for the Jews, he was the first Hungarian king who was a Christian zealot. He attempted to force all the Jews in his kingdom to convert to Christianity, and when it failed, he expelled them all in 1360. Now, the expulsion only lasted four years because he needed their money, but church ordinances now begin to be passed. 
there is an important document regarding the Jews, which was referred to as the Law Book of Buddha. And you find the following, and I quote, The Jews, whom Christian love shelters and tolerates, are not distinguished from the Christians. To make the Jews recognizable from afar, they must wear a tall, conical Jewish hat, what we would call a dunce hat, a red cape, and at a most conspicuous spot, a large yellow patch. I mean, the basic purpose of this costume was to humiliate the Jews, not just to identify them. And the law book greatly limited the ability of the Jews to sell merchandise. They could only do so once a week and only in the Jewish street. If they ventured amongst Christians, their merchandise would be uh, taken from them. And all foreign merchants, anyone from outside of Buddha, was prohibited from doing business with them at all. And the Jews are described as evil. In fact, in the tax on Jew wine, it uh, describes the Jews as despicable, hard-necked, stinking betrayers of God. Huh. And to obtain any official document, the Jews have to pay double the fee than that of a Christian. But having said all that, money is money. And that will continue to secure the Jews in Hungary. And therefore, as I mentioned, King Bela's letter of privilege remains in uh, situ until 1526. And they are moneylenders. The interest rate, by the way, was staggering. 86% annually on amounts less than one pound and 43% on larger amounts. So, you know, you can't complain about the hikes recently by the Bank of England. And these exorbitant rates explain, on the one hand, how Jews could make a living, even when they were only the middlemen. On the other hand, it explains why it created so much resentment against them. In 1385, Sigismund of Luxembourg becomes the ruler of the Holy Empire, and he saw Hungary as a frontier state, a buffer against the advancing Turkish power. And to be able to withstand the Turks, he needed money. So he was forced into mortgaging, which he carried out through the Jews. Now, when you and I mortgage, it's a house. In his case, he mortgaged 13 towns in northern Hungary. At one stage, the entire area of Hungary between the Danube and the Vag River in Slovakia was mortgaged, <laughs> right? This is playing Monopoly on a rather large scale. So he neither persecuted nor protected the Jews. He just tried to squeeze as much money as he could out of them. And while this was a considerable burden on the Jews, it allows them to buy from him rights and privileges. You said Monopoly. It sounds like it's almost a game that both sides are playing. It's business, but business with lives in the balance. And the money is so important to these rulers, which is, of course, the absurd irony of Christianity, which accuses the Jews of doing anything for money. Yet, you know, consider how the kings across Europe behaved for money. But the most implausible element of all of this, almost miraculous by way of contrast, is the reign of Laszlo V in the 1440s. This king personally 
allocated the properties of murdered or expelled Jews in Breslau and in other cities to various communities, as well as banishing the Jews from Silesia and parts of Moravia. And he stated that he did it for the glorification of God and the honor of Christianity. Yet at the same time, when John Capistrano, who had a fanatical mob that followed him, when he passed through Hungary, going from town to town, preaching a crusade against the unbelievers, this same King Laszlo made Capistrano understand that no anti-Jewish excesses would be tolerated in this country. And you find the same with King Albert, who expelled all the Jews from Austria. When he becomes the King of Hungary, he reconfirms their privileges of Bela IV. Jews provided money everywhere in Europe. Why particularly Hungary was spared? And it was uh, almost a privilege to have the Jews because they were providing money. So the truth is I don't have a complete answer. Possibly the concentration of Jews into very few cities, they were in Buda and Preshburg in Chopron, meant perhaps that they weren't a visible constant sight everywhere. They weren't that relevant. You know, out of sight, out of mind, the average peasant or even the church. It's difficult to understand because obviously money lending is what Jews did across the continent. And as we will see, it wasn't in the merit of terror being studied in Hungary that they were being saved. Now, it doesn't mean that, of course, that the Jews had it easy, but they were tolerated for five centuries. There was a period of time that was always dangerous for the Jews, and that was the interval between the death of the old king and the reaffirmation by their successor, because they were now unprotected, and there would often be outbreaks of violence against the Jews, carried out by those who wanted to show loyalty to the church. In fact, often as a precaution, the well-to-do Jews of Buddha would send their families and probably their valuables to a different location. And of course, no Jew knew in advance what the attitude of the new ruler would be towards them. In hindsight, we know, but not at the time. But obviously, they remained important enough that there were no citywide or countrywide attacks. You're painting quite a clear picture of how relevant it was in those times of the leader as to Jewish safety and security. That's true everywhere in Europe, absolutely, throughout the Middle Ages. You know, contrast, William the Conqueror brings the Jews into England. It's only because of him that they are here, and they are only here because he needs money. And 1290, Edward I throws out the Jews of England because they can no longer provide money, and it's only him, it's his decree that makes it happen. Yes, that was absolutely the case. Read the Jewish magazines for more information. Absolutely. Now, under King Matthias, in 1477, a new role was created, the Jewish prefect, the first of whom was Judah Mendel. His responsibility was to allocate the royal taxes amongst the Jewish communities. And as a result of systemizing the collection of these taxes, there was a fivefold increase, which obviously makes the king a happy bunny. This Jewish 
prefect is referred to in official documents in various languages. In German, he is referred to as the highest superior of the Jews. In a French ambassador's report, he is called Prince des Juifs. And this arrangement resulted in the presence in the royal court for the first time in Hungarian history of a senior Jewish official who represented the country's Jews and was responsible for them. This is 500 years ago. It's probably the first time in European history, not just Hungary, no? Well, Muslim Spain, uh, you know, already at the end of the 10th, beginning of the 11th, but in Christian Europe, yes. In the 15th century, it is the only known example of a Jew being royally appointed at court. And it wasn't just a title. The Jewish prefect participated in all official occasions of the court. He is wearing weapons, arms, and he is accompanied by a contingent of armed horsemen. When King Matthias arrived in Buddha at the fortress to celebrate his wedding, Judah Mandel headed a contingent of Jewish dignitaries on horseback to receive the king. And in fact, there is a German chronicler, Johann Sebold, who describes the scene, which I will quote. The Drew Mendel was attended by 31 fine horses and led the king into the inner castle, making a speech to King Matthias. Then the Jews rode out to greet the queen. Boys dressed in violet garments decorated with silver, carrying a great banner on which was written in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael. Behind the banner walked 150, wearing hoods of silk, and they carried a canopy, which an old Jew walked beneath carrying a scroll. Then came the king and queen together, who approached on their mounts, and as they came to the canopy, the Jew or the Jews approached the king and queen with the scroll. That puts our coronation to shame. (laughs) Well, it shows that 500 years ago, these things were happening, but it is very unusual, as you pointed out. And this is all happening on horseback. But these reports also show that the Jews of Buddha were well-to-do. They're wearing expensive imported luxury items, and they're allowed to carry weapons. Now, the prefect had almost unlimited power over the Jews, whether individuals or communities. He, in fact, had a jail in Buddha of his own where he could imprison Jews who failed to pay the taxes that he allocated. And even the appointment of the rabbonim, of the chief rabbi, so to speak, was up to him. And as a result, whenever Jews suffered any curtailment of their rights or privileges anywhere in the country, they turned to him, and he presented their claims to the king personally. Was he a religious man? I mean, at the time, religious is a given in that unless you were converted, you were basically doing what everybody else was doing. Was he a uh, a mamin, a person of faith? Who knows? Maybe less so than his, you know, more religiously inclined brethren. But it's it's difficult to actually be certain to have uh, any facts on the matter. Right. All in all, seven of the Mendel family served as Jewish prefects, which is the equivalent of the Horowitz family in Prague, 
the Yakubovich family in Krakow at the same time, where you have one controlling family in power for many decades, sometimes even centuries, although these others, these other cities, were never as powerful as uh, the prefect of Buddha. But by 1526, Fekita Mendel had fallen out of grace. And on June 6th of that year, Lajosh II sent an order to Preshburg for his arrest. What happened to him? We don't know. Fekita Mendel's daughter became one of several Hungarian Jewish women who are known to have engaged in the money business, which we'll come back to. So you've spoken about these leaders. We're not sure how religious they were, if at all. And they would have been somewhat, for sure. Right. Who were the actual religious leaders of the time? Who was the, the rabbis? So they actually had few rabbis and teachers, definitely few of note. In 1190, Rebleza ben Yitzchok, who was in Bohemia, wrote that in most Jewish communities of Hungary, there were no Jewish scholars. And if they find somewhere a knowledgeable man, they take him to be their cousin, rabbi or teacher of their children. And they clearly needed guidance from the outside, from outside rabbis. We see in 1217, when Rav Yitzhak ben Moshe, the famous Urzerua, visited Hungary, Eretz Hagar, as he describes it, to Buddha and Estegom. In both communities, the local Jews asked him whether it was permitted to use the hot thermal springs as a mikvah instead of cold water. And his answer was that the Talmud permits the youths of Chamei Tavere, the thermal waters of Tiberias. Now, these two communities were the oldest and at the time the best organized in the country. And if even they lacked a scholar who could make a halachic decision, which was clearly relevant on an ongoing basis, you can assume that in other communities, the situation was even worse. Right. Is this the first Jewish source that we have concerning the Jews of Buddha? Yes, although Buddha itself is referred to in halacha as often by its German name, sometimes with a face, sometimes with a vase. And therefore, until the 15th century, they were a relatively unlearned community, and there is a conspicuous absence of Jewish literature. There is one Hungarian Jewish scholar who lived in the 11th century, mentioned by Rashi. He writes in uh, Sefer Paradis that a katsin, a person in a high position, our master Yitzchok Yaskont of the land of Hagar proposed a different meaning. So he brings his opinion into his writings. The first known Jewish author who lived in Hungary was around 1400, although he was born in Vienna, he moved to the Hungarian city of Nagishambat and becomes known as Isaac Tiranau, which is the German name for the city, Turna in, in Russian Kodesh. And Rav Isaac Tiranau's fame rests on his Sefer Haminhogim, which is one of the earliest sources for various halachas, um, Tashlich, for instance, alongside the Maharil, who uh, learnt in the same Besamedrash as Rav Isaac in Austria and was possibly his Chavrusa. He's also the earliest source that we should not say Tachnun on Lagba Omer, which is uh, very topical, 
and that when we say Tachnun at Shacharis, we lean on our non-Tfilin hand and we reverse the situation for Mincha. So there are a number of things that are from his Sefer. I'm surprised he's not a household name. That's because most of his rulings are incorporated into the Ramah, into the Shulchan Aruch, and so therefore the Sefer isn't learned independently nowadays. But if you look up the sources that the Ramah is quoting, you'll find this, mm-hmm. amongst others, obviously. I mean, he writes in his preface that since the Black Death, which ended in 1350, which decimated the Jewish communities of Germany to such a degree, scholars became so few that in many places, no more than one or two remained with any real knowledge of local custom. But his city, unfortunately, is known for a negative event too. It took 350 years for the infamous libel that Jews used Christian blood for ritual purposes to travel from England, where the first such accusation took place in 1144, to Hungary, where the first blood libel occurred in 1494. Now, bear in mind, this accusation could be visited on Jews any time in any community in Europe. It was a fear that existed for 800 years. Any time a Christian child went missing, because once the accusation was out there, it was almost impossible to extricate yourself from it uh, because of torture or informers. And no evidence, no real evidence was ever necessary. You never had to find the the, the child in question. And Jews across an entire continent lived with the knowledge that the next day they could be arrested. It made no difference which country. And, you know, we never really think about that aspect of life. How fragile it was. Completely. So what happened in 1494? So the child of a Christian family in Nagishambat disappeared. And non-Jewish witnesses claimed that a day earlier they'd seen the child in the Jewish street. There is a non-Jewish, a Christian chronicler, who, of course, gives uh, full credit to the accusation. And he describes how soldiers went to the houses of the Jews. And in one particular house, they found fresh traces of blood. So the owner of that house and his entire family were arrested and under torture confessed that they dragged the child into the nearby shul where they killed the child and partly drank his blood and put aside the rest of the blood for others because Jews needed Christian blood for holy purposes and that they then cut the body into pieces. And this confession sufficed for authorities to burn the accused in the marketplace. And in fact, more de- details about this uh, auto de fe are contained in a kinna written by Yeshua ben Chaim, who either witnessed it himself or learned about it from eyewitnesses. And he writes that the entire procedure from arrest to torture and execution took 17 days and that they were killed on the 20th of Elul, the 22nd of August. And we are told that clemency was offered to the accused if they would accept Christianity, but they rejected it. And amongst the victims were two elders, uh, rabbis maybe, who prayed until the flames consumed their bodies. And the city then set up a stone statue of the allegedly murdered child as a memorial, which was still around in the 19th century. But despite this experience, Jews continued to live in Nagishambat for another 34 years. The fragile existence, you know, if they move town, it's not that it isn't going to follow them. Wow. 
Okay, I think you've set the scene of the history of Budapest. Right. Can you describe life, or specifically Jewish life, but life in Budapest at that time? Well, no, we may as well talk about Jewish life. The capital, Buddha, since the time of the Magyars, was really only inhabited by Jews after the defeat of the Mongol invasion in 1242. And they moved to what is nowadays Castle Hill for those who have visited. And it was part of the rebuilding under King Bela IV. One of his first steps was to mint new coins. And amongst those he employed were Jews who stamped the new coins with Hebrew letters, potentially the initials of their own names. And we still have coins with the letters visible, an Aleph, a Ches, a Chof, a Mem. And a chronicle of the Hungarians, which is a 1358 book, tells us that there was a shul and a gate next to the shul called the uh, Sabbath gate, Porta Sabati, probably because the Jewish quarter was closed off on Shabbos. The cemetery of the old Jewish quarter was beyond the city walls, and the oldest extant gravestone is dated 1278, and it shows the name of Rav Pesach ben Rav Peter. And this is the oldest gravestone in all of Buddha with a date on it, found in its original location. Today it's on display in the Budapest National Museum. But in 1424, the king decided to build a church in the immediate vicinity of the royal palace. The most suitable location was the Jewish street, so all the Jews had to relocate, still in Buddha, but no longer next to the castle. Um, we still, though, um, have to um, view a particular event, perhaps a particular individual, to really round out an understanding of the life of Jews in Buddha. It's a fascinating individual called Shlomo Senor, who escaped from Spain after the expulsion in 1492, and he comes to Buddha. And in one of his swarim, he wrote, I learned Torah, and Torah became my wealth. But he acquired um, actual wealth besides the Torah. He settled down in the Jewish street. He chose a Hungarian name, gets married. He has two sons, and he gets close to the king because he's the chancellor of the treasury. He then had an affair with a Christian woman. And when this becomes public, to avoid uh, punishment and possibly even to further his career, he is baptised. Imre Zerentius the Fortunate. So he leaves his wife and, and children rather in the Jewish street, and he marries this jo German noblewoman. But to his enemies, he is still a Jew. And therefore, 15 years later, at a parliamentary meeting in Buddha in May 1525, the nobility focused their attacks on this Fortunatus, whom they accuse of causing the troubles of the country. And they asked that his majesty should have this uh, Jew-turned-Christian burnt at the stake. The king has him imprisoned, but after two weeks, he releases Serentius in exchange for a large sum of money. This Serentius goes home, and he lives in a castle, and he's celebrating his liberation with his friends when the servants of the nobility attacked his house. They broke through the fortified gates, and he escaped by sliding down ropes from the top of the wall into the moat. So you can imagine the type of house he lived in. 
Uh, but the rampage continued. Gold was taken by the sackful. An Italian witness reported that there wasn't a man who didn't carry off something. And they found an enormous fortune there and left nothing behind, not even a single window lock. On the third day, having uh, exhausted the possibilities, the mob moved to the Jewish street. The Jews themselves retreated into a fortified house. And when the mob attacked even that, the army finally put an end to the riots. It took a whole day to do so. Incredibly, shortly after the pogrom, Sherentius is still able to convince the king and the nobility that he could restore the financial situation of the country and the royal court, and he does so. And then, a few weeks before the Battle of the Moax in June 1526, he donated a large sum of money to the king to support the campaign against the Turks, and dies shortly thereafter. But there's never a dull day in Halacha, and he is the cause of an, cause of an exchange of halachic responsa, because his two Jewish sons, Avram and Ephraim, who remained members of the Jewish community, were called to the Torah by their grandfather's name rather than by their baptized father's name. Now, these Jews, uh, these sons, who were embarrassed to be called that way, didn't accept this, and therefore they declined any aliyah. Well, so I guess the question was that they wanted to be called after their baptized father's name to the Torah? Yeah. So you might say, sort of, you know, it's part of a question, but it's a trufa in which the Ramah and the Maram Padua got involved, as well as others. It starts with the rabbi of Buddha, of Naftalia Cohen, who permitted it. And here, some of Sherencha's history emerges post his conversion. It's seen that every Friday afternoon, before Shabbos, he would give stocker to poor Jews. And there was a case where after the death of a baptized Jew, Serentius brought two children from Austria to Buddha and raised them as Jews. He also saved Jewish men and women from the death penalty. He saved the Jewish community at one stage, not mentioned which one, from the charge of sacrificing Christian children. He was, in fact, able to prove that it was the denouncer himself who was trying to frame the Jews and who had killed a child. One of his sons wrote that his father warned the Jews in a secret Hebrew letter when they were in danger. He prevented the expulsion of the Jews from Prague when it was under Hungarian rule. And the Maram Padua, who was a cousin of Natali, notes that even kings and other nobility are mentioned in blessings in shawls, even though they're not Jewish. And if their name can be pronounced, then Rup Shlomo deserves it all the more, given all the actions that he did on behalf of his people. And this was the ruling, which was later confirmed by the Ramah in Krakow. Having now been rehabilitated, the two Jewish sons left Buddha and changed their name to Zaks, an abbreviation of Zera Kodesh Senor, the holy descendants of this individual. Uh, some of the descendants moved to Eisenstadt and others as far as Vilna. No relation to the former chief rabbi, I'm guessing. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe. Interestingly, the Truva adds that as he was dying and in the presence of several Jews, this Shlomo Senor um, returned to the Jewish faith 
according to the traditional ceremony of Truva and Vidui. Well, fascinating. Thank you for the first of three on Budapest. We're looking forward to hear the final two. Yes, more unusual things to come. Firstly, the fact that central Hungary, including Buddha, was occupied by Muslims for 160 years. And we will also talk about Jewish criminals, the status of women, and some other unusual halachic inquiries. Fantastic. Looking forward to Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Please do send any questions, any feedback to podcasts at jle.org.uk. And as I said before, for all those that were wondering about the coronation episode, pick up your copy of the Mishpacha or the Ami. Or if you can't buy it in the stores, make sure you borrow it from one of your neighbors. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Good night. Good night.